The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Rothschild, The Untold Story of the World's Most Famous Dynasty. Natalie, welcome. Obviously, we have heard through history an awful lot about the Rothschilds, but it's normally the men. What was it that made you tick, hang on, there's another story here? Well, that's exactly it. And I think we all know about the Rothschilds, but it's a, it's a traditionally male narrative. It's about banking and finance. And actually, five years ago, I was having lunch with Andrew Roberts, the historian. I just finished writing my first book, The Mistresses of Cliveden. I loved it. And it was about reclaiming the stories of under-researched women. And Andrew said to me, well, what do you fancy doing next? I said, I don't know. I'm fascinated by women. I'm fascinated by Jewish history. And he said, what about the Rothschilds? I thought, okay, the women of the Rothschild family, fabulous. I started delving into it. The first book I read was A Baroness by Hannah Rothschild, which was absolutely gripping. It was the biography of her great aunt Nika, the jazz baroness, who left her family in this wonderful glittering life that she had and moved to New York to become a patron of the jazz scene. And I thought, okay, these are some interesting women here. And then I came across this this essay by Miriam Rothschild, which began life as a catalogue essay for a 2004 exhibition, which honoured the birth of the founding father of the Rothschild dynasty, Maya Amschel Rothschild. And in it, Miriam talked about her female ancestors and she spoke about this parallel but separate little world that they'd created. And all of a sudden, I just felt like centuries of history that I kind of assumed that I knew about were just blown wide open. And there were these stories that were just ready to be told. And that was what made me think, okay, this is going to be exciting. Yes, and in the, as you say, in the 20th century, there are these, these standout figures of Miriam and Nika Rothschild. Mm. And, and I think I'm right in saying, I hope this is right, that, that Hannah, the author of that book about Nika, is mm. now pretty much Queen Bee in terms of being in charge of the Rothschild pile. You know, they're not quite as patriarchal as they were, but they were, through much of the history, very patriarchal. It was a very male story, as you say. And I'd like to start, before we get into all that, that 20th century fun, to go right back to the beginning, you know, where the story of the Rothschild start, because you have a, a wonderful, long-lived kind of matriarch way back in the shtetl, don't you? Yes, that's right. So, you know, when people talk about the Rothschilds, they think about grand houses and gilded lifestyles and marbled hallways and fine wines. But actually, the story of the Rothschilds is far more prosaic than that. Uh, They began the family, the cradle of the Rothschild family is the Judengasse, Jews Lane, the Frankfurt Ghetto. It's impossible to overstate just what horrendous conditions the Jews who were herded into that ghetto lived in. You know, to give you an example, there were 200 houses in the lane, but by 1610, there were 3,000 people living in those houses. So by the time that the Rothschilds came, my matriarch, Gutler, came into being, there were probably 
5,000 Jews crowded into that lane. The buildings, there wasn't enough space on the footprint to accommodate the number of people. So houses were built on top of one another. There was no light in this ghetto. I mean, people who would come to visit the ghetto as a kind of historical curiosity would comment on how pale the Jews were because they were just not exposed to light. There were open sewers. There were acrid fumes. It was a truly, truly unpleasant place to live in. I mean, the Jews were physically walled in by iron gates. There was a nightly curfew. They lived under these laws called the Städtekeit, excuse my German accent, in which Jews didn't even have citizenship. So this was a very, very difficult circumstance in which the Rothschild dynasty was born. My Amschel Rothschild in 1777 married this extraordinary woman called Gutela Schnapper, who was a formidable character by any standards. Funnily enough, she gave her dowry of 2,400 guldens was the money that actually started off the bank. So ironically, if not for her dowry, the Rothschild banking dynasty wouldn't have come into being. Yeah, the seed so capital for the Rothschilds came came from Came from Gutela Rothschild, who's practically been written out of history. Now, Gutela was extraordinary. She was pregnant 19 times, which is in itself a feat. And in this, these tiny little houses, she gave, she gave birth to 10 children, to 10 children survived. She had five sons who were very well chronicled, but she had five daughters who were less well chronicled. And yeah, my story starts off with her and her life in the ghetto and how she gave birth to this extraordinary dynasty. I think so one kind of parenthesis, which was fascinating to me, it's probably well known, but I hadn't, is that in the ghetto, the houses didn't have numbers. They were that's all right. named after some yes. sort of symbol. And that's where Rothschild comes from. Is that that's so? right. So Rothschild comes from Rothschild, Red Shield. When Gutela was a little girl, she lived in a house called the Euler, which was the owl. When Gutela and Maya Amschel first got married, they lived in a place called the Himpterfan, which is literally the back of a pan, which really speaks volumes about just how horrendous the conditions were in that house. They really did live in an, in an open sewer. And so what got them going? I mean, once there was this, this money was there, mm. you know, the Jews of Europe were very, very poor. They weren't allowed to do lots and lots of things, but one of the reserved occupations they had was lending money at interest, yeah? That's right, yeah. So Maya Amschel Rothschild began his career as a, as a coin collector, because there were very wealthy people who collected coins and a lot of aristocracy, he became familiar with a lot of princes and, and you know, very influential and wealthy people in and around Frankfurt. So he had this incredible network of contacts. So it was easy for him to make the transition from coin collecting to banking. And he was extraordinarily good at, at what he did and very talented, really great at making networks, very good at maintaining contacts. But actually what's lesser known is that Gutler helped him a lot. Gutler was a cashier, Gutler was his archivist, Gutler helped him in all sorts of ways. And I think from a combination of luck and skill, they became the most successful banking family in the ghetto. And they had some kind of extraordinary detail. There was a sort of the official shop front in their house. And then there was like this secret cellar mm. where all the real records were kept. Part of the Rothschild DNA is this 
deep secrecy. And I really think the deep secrecy dates back to this secret cellar that was in, in the Grunshield, in the Green Shield, the house that, that, that they lived in. So yes, they had the shop front where all the normal transactions took place. But the really important documents that Maya Amschel shared with his super VIP clients were kept in this secret cellar. So for example, in 1808, when there was a raid from the Napoleonic authorities, and the Napoleonic authorities were trying to investigate Maya Amschel's business, they couldn't find the document, the real documents in the secret cellar. So he was always prepared. And I think it's that sense of anticipation and preparation and preemptory secrecy that has really helped form the character of the family. Why, why do you think that that secrecy is so ingrained in the dynasty? I mean, of course, probably hasn't helped the proliferation over the years of kind of conspiracy theories and anxieties about the idea that the Rothschilds are, are somehow untrustworthy. I think when you look at the origins of the Rothschild family, you know, it was a ghetto. They were excluded. They were complete outsiders and they were the enemies within. So I think when when your origins, when at the very, very heart of, of your core DNA is being an enemy within, you're naturally suspicious of everyone. And I think that suspicion never really left them. You've talked about this extraordinary par- partnership between Amschel and Guter. There is a you know, almost a kind of founding thing in the Rothschild dynasty is Amschel's will, which is mm. a great kick in the face for his wife yeah. and for daughters and female descendants. Yeah, I mean, I look at that 1812 will as a great betrayal because after everything that Gutler had done for my Amschel, 19 pregnancies, bringing up 10 children, helping him with with all aspects of his business, stonewalling the Napoleonic authorities when they came to raid the house. In the, when he died in 1812, there was a codicil in his will in which he disinherited the women in his family. So he forbade all of the women, any of his female descendants, from working in the bank, and he, he disinherited them. So for the next 250 years, he basically set the pattern for their lives. So not only were the Rothschild women outsiders by virtue of their religion, but they were also outsiders in their own family by virtue of their gender. So this was a really, really harsh clause. I mean, it's important to emphasise that this was not unusual at the time because it was important to keep the money, you know, in any family business, you know, within the family business integrated. But it was unusual in the sense that it was codified in such a stark way. And that really did set the tone for the next 250 years of history. And yet, as you trace through the book, there were all sorts of workarounds that they arrived at. I mean, one of the kind of gripping figures of the next generation, the sort of matriarch in waiting, is Hannah. Um, Hannah, yeah. And can you describe a, a little briefly how having started in Frankfurt, and still, as you say, Gutler never left the ghetto, mm. but the families opened outposts, as it were, all yes, over Europe. Yes. And one of the important so, ones was in the UK. Yeah, so it's a really well-known story that Maya Amschel sent his five sons to the capitals of Europe to set up this extraordinary banking dynasty. Lesser known are his five daughters. So when Maya Amschel died in 1812, four of his daughters were married, one was unmarried, this incredibly feisty, headstrong character called Henriette. 
And everyone was in a state about her. What do we do with Henriette? She's unmarried. She's been disenfranchised. She's been disinherited. We have to marry her off. And there was a great deal of of, of toing and froing between Gutela and her five sons. What do we do with Henriette? Eventually, the decision was made to ship Henriette off from the ghetto that she knew and loved and everything that was familiar to her to London under the care of her brother, Nathan, and his wife, Hannah Barrent Cohen, who actually became one of my favourite women to write about. Hannah was an extraordinary woman. She was very accultured. So she was one of the Jews in London who really had her foot in two camps. She was very aware of her Jewish heritage, yet she was also keen to integrate elements of British culture into her life. And when she married Nathan, she really created a home and a life for the family that was a combination of the two. But, you know, she was still a Rothschild wife and she still had responsibilities and she was still seen very much as a second class citizen. But actually, when looking into her records, it was amazing to see what she did in terms of of the finances. For example, there was a story in the 1830s. Hannah decided that she was going to go off to Paris to look after her oldest daughter, Chili, who was about to give birth. And in all the books I'd read before, this was a story. Hannah had gone off to look after Chili. Chili had given birth to a child. Great, lovely Hannah goes home. Actually, what really happened was Hannah arrived in Paris in the 1830s. And this was just after the the July days. This was a very febrile environment. The the Bourbon monarchy had just fallen. The regime of the Duke d'Orléans has been installed. So Hannah realised this was an environment in which fortunes could be made and lost. And in the period which she was waiting for her daughter to give birth, she decided that she was going to wander to the headquarters of the Rothschild Banking House in Paris in the Rue d'Artois. And she sat there and she thought, oh my goodness, this is my passion. This is what I'm really interested in. And she started buying and selling French government securities. And she was so good at this. And she started writing all these letters to Nathan, her husband in London, advising him about what to do. And she became an indispensable advisor to him. And she stayed in this banking house 12 hours a day for seven days, obsessively trading these these French government securities or or rents. And she would start writing these amazing letters to Nathan and and her son Lionel. And she really developed this unbelievable talent and passion for high finance. And actually, when her daughter showed signs of going into labor, she was so reluctant to leave the banking house that she left until the last possible minute to rush home to welcome her first grandchild. And for the rest of her life and the rest of Nathan's life, she became an indispensable financial advisor. Yet none of this is recorded in the letters. None of this makes the history books because that wasn't part of the narrative. And it's only just from looking at the letters and and discovering what really happened that you get a sense of, of what Hannah was. So really within one generation, the terms of Maya Amschel's will had been subverted by this extraordinary woman. And yet none of her contributions really make the history books. Yeah, you know, this is a, a family that's tended to be quite secretive. Yet you've obviously found an enormous amount of documentary material, mm. be they letters or diaries or, yeah. you know, whatever. Was that hard to come by? Do you know, surprisingly not, because 
they're all there and that's that's that was the incredibly sorry where's there well so there are two sorry <laughs> i should explain so there are two rothschild archives in the uk one is the rothschild archives in london which is attached to the bank in st swithin's lane and the other one is in wadston in windmill hill attached to the house and these are extraordinary repositories of information but i think traditionally people have gone there to to write about to research the history of the bank and you know the economic history of the Rothschilds. There are in fact unbelievable letters, unbelievable diaries, unbelievable sources about the women's social history that have just been lying there, kind of decaying, gathering dust for such a long time. And it was easy to come by. I just had to ask for them. And then all I needed to do was read them. And there are these lives that just uncovered and just became that just these technicolor lives that were just jumping out of the page of every letter. Now that that social history you know it's kind of non-trivial isn't it because so much of the story of the Rothschilds is the way in which these networks and these contacts and these relationships particularly when as they start as you say you know as the mistrusted outsiders you know they're Jewish people need their money Mm. but they're not sure that they trust them a lot of that came through the women, didn't it? Being a Rothschild wife, the social stuff was very, very involved with the business stuff. And of course, the marital alliances yeah. were important too, weren't Absolutely. They? And you're 100% right. And actually, what I obviously, when you're, you're looking at you know, the impact of women, you're looking at their soft power. You're looking at the balls and the parties that, that they, they made to create these phenomenal social networks. But what I was shocked by is actually how powerful their, how great their influence was in the political arena. For example, Hannah Rothschild's, Hannah Barrett Cohen's daughter-in-law, Charlotte Rothschild, who was known to be this incredibly beautiful socialite. She made these wonderful parties. Her invitations were said to be more popular than Queen Victoria. But actually, one of Charlotte's greatest achievements was to bring about the election of her husband, Lionel, as the first Jewish member of parliament. So Charlotte wrote his many of his manifestos. She wrote really cogent and beautifully argued open letters to the Times. She canvassed on the streets of, of the city of London, his constituency, and she worked on this tirelessly for 11 years. And um, this contribution is, is largely overlooked. And I argue and hopefully there's good evidence that without her contribution and without everything that she did there's no way that Lionel would have been able to take his seat. No well I mean the road to Lionel taking his seat which is a rocky one and it goes on for many decades uh, in some sense. Can, can you sketch that a little bit because this I mean there's a piercing thing where the you know that one of the original Rothschild relationships in the UK was with the man who went on to become the Duke of Wellington mm. and you know they financed his wars mm. yeah and yet when the first the first time that Jewish emancipation was raised he absolutely turned around and kicked them in the face didn't he yeah well this is another great betrayal and I think you know if there is a light motif of the story of the Rothschild women it is betrayals by men so the story of Jewish emancipation actually dated back to Hannah Rothschild. Hannah was the principal architect of Jewish emancipation. She realised that it wasn't enough just to have wonderful parties and fine wines, that the Jews needed political representation in Parliament. And as you rightly say, 
Nathan, her husband, financed the Napoleonic Wars. He was responsible for filling the coffers of the Duke of Wellington so that the Duke of Wellington could go off to war and have the, the victories that he did. So when it came to lobbying for a Jew to be allowed to sit in the Houses of Parliament, Hannah assumed that the Duke of Wellington would support them. They had a lot of legislative obstacles in that there was uh, the Test and Corporation Act, from which dated back to the 17th century, which said that no Jew could sit in a position of public authority without renouncing their Judaism. So this was a hugely important law that Hannah was aware that needed to be overturned. So that was the first stage in the emancipation campaign. And Hannah, there are lots of letters that I read where Hannah said said to her husband, Nathan, OK, Nathan, you've done your thing for Wellington. Now Wellington needs to do his thing for you. They invited Wellington to wonderful parties. They had gatherings, that, which were all about the subtext of these wonderful parties was all about emancipation. And yet when it came to the day when Wellington had to stand up and pledge his support for the mod- modification of the Test and Corporation Act, Wellington actually got up and said, do you know, I can't endorse this. Jews are aliens. They're not English citizens. They're not British citizens. So they're not entitled to sit in the Houses of Parliament without renouncing their religion. And it was an enormous, enormous betrayal for Hannah. And it was immensely dispiriting for a while. And she she was really shocked that there could be so much duplicity. Yeah, it was another generation before that got back on track. How... Early on, was it that, as it were, for, for better and for worse, the Rothschilds became and became aware that they were kind of ambassadors for the Jewish nation as well as private citizens who were, you know, making their way in the world? Because it, it does feel like it's quite early on that, yeah. you know, Rothschild a- meant international Jews. Absolutely. Jewry. And this is all down to Hannah. Hannah was so clever because she realised that they had that the Rothschilds had this tremendous communal responsibility. And she knew that this could be fostered in a number of ways. It could be fostered by creating the right social contacts. And in order to do that, the Rothschilds had to have the most lavish wines, the most beautiful catering. I mean, she would bring in this amazing caterer called William Jarin, who made these wonderfully famous concoctions out of sugar. You know, she had to have the most fragrant parties, the most beautiful balls. But also she realised that this had to be done through political representation. So it was very much Hannah who created this this awareness that the Rothschilds were the ambassadors for, for, for the Jewish community in Britain. And she took that responsibility very, very seriously. And that's something that she passed on to her children. And so, yeah, she, she was really at the root of it. Now, obviously, a lot of the history of, of Jewish integration has been on that question of do you do you keep in the family, in the religion, in the in the faith, or do you integrate and assimilate and so on? And at least to start with, it was very much, wasn't it, the Rothschild position that you needed to maintain not just your Jewish distinctiveness, but your, your family distinctiveness. They're all marrying their cousins and there's a huge mm. scandal when one of them didn't. Yeah, well, it makes it very confusing in terms of the names because they all married the cousins. And one, one of the, the I original say, say brothers... I for listeners, there's a very helpful, if, if sometimes hard to follow, 
family tree which runs over several pages at the beginning and helps you sort your amshals from your nats and your nats from your nathaniels and so yeah it does but I, I did learn an amazing word endogamy which means cousin marriage which I didn't know about which is but it wasn't only cousin marriage it, it was nieces and uncles and it was it was what they needed to do to keep the the family intact which was you know according to the to the will of 1812 that was more important than anything else however within the second generation Hannah and Nathan had a daughter called Hannah Maya and again, confusingly called Hannah. You'll find that a lot of the women are called Hannah and a lot of the men are called Lionel. So it is quite important to you know, separate your Hannahs from, from, from your Lionels. But once you do, it's definitely, it's, it's definitely worth the effort. So Hannah Baron cohen was so good at teaching her children how to integrate into the British upper class, into the British elite. She was so great at teaching them how to become wonderful musicians. I mean, she had Rossini teaching her daughter, Hannah Meyer, music. I mean, they had Felix Mendelssohn teaching them the piano. She taught them how to behave at balls. She taught them all the right languages, all the right skills. So it actually comes as no surprise that when her daughter Hannah Meyer became of the marriageable age and she was sent back to Frankfurt to try and find herself a suitable Rothschild she kind of turned her nose up at these really uncultured cousins who didn't understand how to waltz and didn't speak French and were not sophisticated so she refused to marry one of her cousins she refused to marry Joseph Montefiore who was one of the cousins who were really you know, who she was told that she had to marry. And Hannah rebelled and she went off into the sunset and she fell in love with an aristocrat called Henry Fitzroy. And she was determined that she was going to marry him, even though her family were absolutely incandescent with rage and thought it was a total repudiation of family pride. And it was an absolute disgrace. But she was very headstrong, Hannah Meyer, and she decided that that was what she was going to do. So she had to convert to Christianity and she had to get married in a church. None of her family were in attendance apart from her brother, Nat. And she went off into this very, very lonely life where she got excommunicated from the rest of her family because she'd renounced her faith. Did the business of, of how strongly observant different branches of the family were over the succeeding centuries sort of divide the family at all? I mean, was there a case that, that if you like, the European branches, and particularly Eastern European branches, kept more kosher and more observant and that the English mob maybe less so? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. I don't think it created divides, but it sometimes created a little bit of social confusion. For example, when some of the German Rothschilds came to stay, there are some really funny letters from Charlotte panicking because she couldn't find a kosher chef. And then once she found a kosher chef, she was absolutely horrified by how much she didn't like the kosher food because she was so used to turtle soup and, and all of these really ornate uh, culinary concoctions that uh, chillant and strudel and huller were a little bit alien to her taste buds. So I think in terms of that, yes, it, it was it was a little bit difficult. Yeah. I was going to say, so one, one marmalade dropper on the cousin marriage front, when the elderly patriarch of the family was widowed, and mm. I think he's in his 80s, he announces at dinner that he's going to marry the 18-year-old 
great niece or whatever she is who's who's there present. Yeah. That was that was sort of seen off. It's horrible. Yeah, that's absolutely that was one of my most cringe moments of the whole research. He was called Uncle Amschel. I, I ref, will always refer to him as Dirty Uncle Amschel. Um, well, his wife, Uncle Amschel. <laughs> his, yes, his wife Eva had died um, at, during their marriage. He was completely devoted. The moment she died, he loved his single life so much that he wrote in a letter that he wished she died sooner. Charming, and he decided that he was going to live out his the rest of his life with a with a wonderful young woman on his arm and the family convened in Frankfurt at his house for dinner and he set his sight on Julie who was the 18 year old daughter of Hannah's daughter Chili and he decided that he was going to marry her and there was nothing that anyone could do or, or the only thing that the women of the family could do at the time was just look into their soup and blush and think oh my goodness there's nothing that we can do about this they had absolutely no power whatsoever so a seriously, on a serious note, if a man decided that he was going to claim a Rothschild woman, no matter how young, as his bride, they had very little recourse. And this would be a terrible life for, for, this, for this young girl marrying an octogenarian. And eventually, Hannah and Chile appealed to the powers that be, the, the other brothers, to try and intervene. And eventually they did. And Uncle Amschel was, was set down and disaster was averted but it, it very nearly happened and that's brutal the idea yeah i mean the, 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 there are a lot of arranged i mean none quite as drastic as this but a lot of arranged and transactional marriages here on balance sort of how many of them works because i mean one of the the shining examples obviously is hannah and nathan in that first mm. first or second generation but were a lot of them very unhappy well, extraordinarily, the arranged marriages seem to have been happier than the marriages where the Rothschild, where some of the women were allowed to go and choose their own partners. So, for Hannah and and, and Nathan were beautifully suited and and you know had a wonderful partnership. Um, Charlotte and Lionel, who were cousins, were truly deeply in 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 love. Um, there are lovely uh, stories about how when when Lionel used to come home from the bank every day at six o'clock, Charlotte would greet him and and give him a kiss on his on his dimpled cheek, and they, they you know they they had a they had a, a lovely partnership. When you get to the to the next generation, when you get to, for example, Constance Rothschild from the Victorian age. She was at liberty where she decided that she wanted to choose her own husband. And she went through numerous suitors um, and she had a lot of, as she called them, flirtations. And she went from one to the other, which is perfectly lovely. And she, she had a great time going to all of the balls and the parties and, and being this, this wonderful single it girl. But eventually her prospects dried up and she met a, a guy called Cyril Flower, who she said, when she first met him, was very beautiful. And she did notice that he loved the company of men, but that didn't seem to deter her. So they got married. And looking at Constance's diaries, of which she kept 37 throughout her life, you can see this very slow but painful process by which she realises that her husband wasn't interested in her at all sexually because he was gay. And she did lament her choice. Yeah. So that that's an example of a very sad marriage that one of the women women chose 
um, by herself. Now, as you said, the, the Rothschilds were so deeply involved in, in that question of you know, Jewish political representation in the UK Parliament and the emancipation of, of Judeo Jewry in the UK. They were also right at the heart of the development of political Zionism, weren't they? Yes, and that's something I really didn't know, to my shame. And actually, it makes me feel incredibly embarrassed about my lack of knowledge. And you've just come to the Cliveden Literary Festival, which you were absolutely brilliant in. Um, Thank you. I hope they leave that. Uh, no, no, I, no I, you, were, you were amazing. Loved, loved every minute of it. The first Cliveden Literary Festival, I did an event which celebrated 100 years of the Balfour Declaration, which you know, um, was a document by which the British government supported the creation of a homeland for the Jewish nation in Palestine. And that document was addressed to dear, to dear Lord Rothschild. So my panel at the festival was celebrating 100 years of the Balfour Declaration. And I photographed the, photocopied the, the Balfour Declaration, I'd circulated it to all of the, to the audience. And we had a wonderful discussion about the Balfour Declaration and what Walter did to bring it about. What I found out, to my shame, when I was at the Waddesdon Archives, was in fact the Rothschild who did the most to bring about the Balfour Declaration, the Rothschild who had the most influence in bringing about the, the Balfour Declaration was not in fact Walter, it was his sister-in-law, Rosika, who was this wonderfully rakish Hungarian political intellectual who married Walter's brother Charles and came to England just after the Second World War. And she was introduced to Chaim Weizmann in March 1915. So the first correspondence that Chaim Weizmann, the, the godfather of Zionism, had with any of the Rothschilds was with Rosika, not Walter. And Rosika went to meet Chaim Weizmann and she wrote in a letter afterwards that uh, she loved idealists and fanatics and Chaim Weizmann was both of them. And she found that extremely attractive. And she threw herself into this cause and she became the gatekeeper for Rothschild family opinion. So Rosika had two very important jobs. She had to lobby the Rothschild family to, to come round to the cause of Zionism, which was absolutely not a, a foregone conclusion. There were a lot of voices of dissent in, in the Rothschild family because there was a feeling that committing to Zionism would in some way be compromising their sense of I, British identity. So she had that responsibility. Yes, you say it divided the family. It divided the family. And Rosika was at the heart of, of bringing round those who were not Zionists, who were not Wisemanites, to the cause. She was very, very talented political lobbyist. But she also rallied the political establishment, the key figures, the Home Secretary, the Foreign Secretary, and introduced all of these extraordinarily influential politicians to Chaim Weizmann. So she did this for 18 months before Walter Rothschild even became involved with any of it. And Walter Rothschild was not a Zionist. He was a zoologist. He wasn't interested in the politics. So it was Rosika who was driving it and driving it and driving it. And it's ironic that um, when you look at the newspaper articles, uh, there was a, a big Thanksgiving celebration given at the Royal Opera House a month after the Balfour Declaration was issued. On the stage at this Thanksgiving a celebration was Rosika, Walter, Balfour and a whole host of British politicians. In the papers the next day, the only Rothschild who was mentioned as being on that stage 
was Walter Rothschild. And, you know, if journalism is a first draft of history, that's the moment that Rosika got written out. It, she really it was the orchestrator of the Balfour Declaration, and it wouldn't have come about without her unbelievable insight and pioneering spirit. Well, you've written her back into history. But her daughters also were quite the handful. I mean, there's just a sort of joyous yeah. passage in the 20th century, these two extraordinary and one very unfortunate character. I mean, let's start, start with Miriam, who, this remarkable woman who is absolutely obsessed with no scientific qualifications at all, but became a pioneering academic in the fields of everything from why fleas jump to how nematode worms go about their work. Absolutely. So, as you say, Miriam wasn't educated conventionally in science. Still, in the 20th century, Rothschild women were not afforded the same educational opportunities that their male counterparts were. But she was passionate about science, so she enrolled herself in polytechnic and she taught herself about everything, as you said, from fleas to worms to frogs. And she became passionate about fleas. She actually was known as the queen of fleas because she was so obsessed with, with fleas. And she used to keep bags of fleas on the doorposts of her bed in the glove compartment of her car. And she described looking at a flea under the microscope as giving her a bigger high than smoking marijuana. So she was absolutely crazy about fleas. She spent decades cataloguing her Uncle Walter's flea catalogue, which was about two or three million specimens. So this was a woman who was highly passionate. But that fleas were not the only area of interest that Miriam Rothschild had. I mean, she was a true 20th century polymath. She was a precocious environmentalist. I mean, you know, before there was Stella McCartney, there was Miriam Rothschild. She refused to wear leather. She would only wear Wellington boots. She had these signature white gum boots that she would wear when she was going about her business. In fact, she even wore them to, to Buckingham Palace. She was a vegetarian. She was a really a, a pioneer of wildflowering, which was something that, that wasn't even a, a gardening trend of, of that day. She was a code breaker at Bletchley Park during the Second World War. Also, she was instrumental in writing the Wolfenden Report, in which homosexuality was decriminalised. And as she was also at the forefront of research into mental health, which is something that plagued her, her family Unfortunately, her father, Charles, committed suicide in 1923 and her sister, Liberty, had severe schizophrenia. And Miriam was really a pioneer in treating mental health in the way that physical health was, was treated. During Miriam's childhood, during her adolescence, mental health was treated in a very brutal way. Schizophrenics were interned in institutions they were treated with vast shots of insulin, which would induce seizures. There were lobotomies. And all of these treatments were actually inflicted on her sister, Liberty. And when Miriam became old enough, she took Liberty out of her institution and Liberty came to live with her, which was incredibly unusual. I think she was one of the first people who took that step. But not only did she make enormous changes to the life of her sister, but she also set up the Schizophrenia Research Trust in which she used her scientific knowledge to start researching into more humane treatments for, for mental health. And in fact, she was really 
at the vanguard of, of everything that we know today about the treatment of mental health, including this extraordinary, you know, Edward Adams, she sponsored Edward Adamson, who was an art therapist. And, the, you know, there were so, so many, so many unbelievable things that, that she did for that, which um, have impacted us today. Her personal life, there's a sort of, I mean, she had a, a as it were, a very conventional, you know, heterosexual marriage in her young years. But later in life, she conceived an absolutely ferocious and poignantly unrequited lesbian passion for a portrait painter. Yeah, did, isn't that did, so? Did her sexuality change tracks, or was she, as it were, closeted in the first half of her life? Well, it's really, really hard to tell. And you know, she, Miriam, married a Hungarian called George Lane. Very, very good looking. She loved him. He. They had a really exciting marriage, but something happened. George was um, kept as a prisoner of war. He came back from the Second World War, deeply traumatised. Their marriage fell apart. And Miriam was a very colourful character. She, she didn't look at people in terms of their gender. She looked at them in terms of, of who they were. And she met this Austrian expressionist portrait artist called Mary Louise Motocinski, and she fell passionately in love with her. And in Mary Louise's archives at the Tate, I found all these heartbreaking love letters from Miriam to Mary Louise and back. And Miriam just declares her undying love to Mary Louise and says, you know, she, she likens her, her life to a desert and meeting Mary Louise is, is like flowering in the desert. So, yes, I think in a way she wasn't aware of, of her sexuality. I don't know if it was consciously re repressed or, or otherwise, but she definitely says in these letters that meeting Mar Mary Louise was a wonderful awakening for her. Um, and from, from then on, you know, she acknowledged the fact that she was bisexual, which was very brave at the time, very ahead of her time. But she had this this wonderful love, which sadly was was unrequited. Oh, there's a very very point misspelled letter saying, "I wish I could be a lesbian." <laughs> yeah, I from yes, yes, from from Mary Louise. But yeah, I know it was very very sad and very touching. Now the other sister, who I mean, as, as you say, Hannah's written a whole book about her, so we haven't gone on. But but give us a flavour of Nika, the ba jazz baroness. What's well, a very pungent flavour, Nika, the, the jazz baroness. So Nika was passionate about jazz, but she did start her life along a very conventional trajectory. She married an aristocrat called Jules de Konigswater. They had four children and it looked like they were going to live happily ever after. But on the eve of her 40th birthday, Nika listened to a record by a jazz musician called Theolonius Monk. And she was completely spellbound. And she decided that she wanted to dedicate her life to jazz. So she upped and left her husband and her kids, moved to New York and became a patron of the jazz scene there and immersed herself in it and, and dedicated her life to patronising and looking after the Alonius Monk, who really was this great passion and love of her life. And she had these wonderful, well, wonderfully exciting and dramatic things happen to her in the various hotel rooms that, that she rented. They were a real den of, of intrigue. There were a musician, Charlie Parker, died in her apartment and there was a lot of 
press furore about the circumstances under which he died. She drag raced Miles David, um, uh, Davis around Manhattan. She was a truly, truly wildly eccentric, fabulously colourful character. And she was forever being pulled over as well, wasn't she? Because there'd be a Rolls Royce with one, one white lady and three black guys yeah. in it. <laughs> yeah, and she actually decided, she actually offered to go to prison for Theolonius Monk because she loved him so much. And she thought that her treatment in prison would be far better than his treatment in prison. So she was, you know, she really adored him. There's a sense that she had, I mean, you, you say that it's not proven, that there was a sense that they did have a brief affair early in their acquaintance, but they had a much stranger relationship than that later, or for most of the, the time that they were together as well, because she was sort of tending to him in concert with his wife, Nellie. Who knows whether they had an affair or not? I think their connection was much deeper than that. She had a passionate devotion to Theolonius Monk. She believed he was a genius and she would do anything that was necessary to facilitate his creativity and genius. So there wasn't really any friction or tension between her and Nellie. It just, you know, whatever Nellie could give him, Mika was happy and whatever she could contribute, Mika was happy too. The most important thing was saving Theolonius Monk. And I think that's really interesting because undoubtedly Mika was passionately in love with Theolonius Monk. We were kind of going to put our psychological hat on. Mika's father committed suicide in 1923. So I think there was this desperate sense that she had to save someone. She had to save someone. So by trying to save Theolonius Monk, it was her way of also trying to save her father, who she tragically couldn't save. Another remarkable figure in a huge panoply of remarkable figures in your book, Natalie Livingston. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you. listening to the spectators books podcast very much hope you enjoyed it and if you did please do consider rating or reviewing us on the itunes store we'd love to hear from you 